At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. This episode is brought to you by Captain Morgan Sliced. Since the dawn of bread, people have known the truth. Sliced is better. That's why new Captain Morgan Sliced went all in on four bold, deliciously sliced cocktail-style flavors. Pineapple daiquiri, strawberry margarita, mango mai tai, and passion fruit hurricane. Visit captainmorgan.com to find Sliced near you. Does not contain real fruit or juice. Captain Morgan & Co., Plainfield, Illinois. Please drink responsibly. 21 plus only. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations, like rainbows and ropes, or fruity and gummy, or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 73 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with big name interviews every Monday, just like this one, and the home of short four or five minute daily episodes released Tuesday through to Sunday on a show I call This Day Rocks. If this is the first time you're listening, then please do find Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app or player of choice and subscribe directly on there so you don't miss a single episode. As I said, one comes out every single day, and you can only get all of these episodes on the Vintage Rock Pod feed, so give it a like or a subscribe separately on the Vintage Rock Pod channel, please. It's all on there. Absolutely free. On to today's guest then. He is a man who's covered the spectrum. He's had a global number one hit and redefined the music video business as well, being behind the camera on some of the biggest hits from the biggest bands. I'm talking about Kevin Godley. Now, Kevin's career spans such a wide course. As part of Hot Legs, he had a number two hit in the UK, and then, along with Lol Cream, Graham Goldman and Eric Stewart, formed 10CC, who went on to score five top ten albums in the UK, three number one singles, and eight other top ten hits as well. He and Lol Cream then left to form Godly and Cream and scored a couple more top ten singles before switching their attention permanently to making music videos. And I'm not just talking a side hustle here, I mean they took over the industry. A look at their video credit roll call is unreal. Elton John's Kiss the Bride, The Police, Every Breath You Take, Asia, Heat of the Moment, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Two Tribes, and the controversial video banned by the BBC, and the one that really revolutionised music videos, Duran Duran's raunchy Girls on Film. Now, they also worked with U2, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Status Quo, In Excess. Honestly, the list is endless. So, as always, I'm looking forward to you hearing my chat with Kevin Gold but first, some really quick shout-outs, and thank you to everyone that was in touch over this last week about episode 72's interview with Stuart Copeland. It's gone down an absolute storm. James DeMarco said, Great job to get so much information out of Stuart Copeland. Becky Salerno said, I loved this so much. Andy Old said it was one of the best so far. Joey Michaud said, Brilliant interview. Christian Swain said, Great interview with Copeland. Mac B said, Your interview with Stuart Copeland was phenomenal. And Joe K said, You got 
got some great insights and humor out of one of the world's greatest drummers. I'm so grateful to everyone that's reached out to me and posted on social media. It really is very much appreciated. Genuinely, genuinely. So if you haven't checked out that interview yet, if you haven't had a chance to listen, then I wholeheartedly recommend you do so. It is one of the best of the series so far. He's funny, frank, and fascinating. Worth a half hour of your time for sure. Check out episode 72, Stuart Copeland. But that was last week, so back to this week, and this week's guest is, of course, Kevin Godley. Now, with a man with such an incredible history, it's hard to talk about everything comprehensively, and as you'll see from the length, it is one of the longer ones I've done, but that's with subjects missed and a few bits edited out for time too. Now, we touch on all the big stories, though, really. 10CC, their biggest hits, including I'm Not In Love, why he and Lol Cream split from the band, their success as a duo, how they got into the world of music videos, and much more. So please, please... Please do enjoy this interview with Kevin Godley. We'll start back with uh, 10CC and we'll start at the start of 10CC, shall we? Because it was originally the four of you, you're all uh, musicians, singers, producers, talented ones at that. But it was uh, a certain Mr. Neil Sedaka who suggested, why are you guys not in a band, didn't, wasn't it? Yeah, it sounds a bit stupid, doesn't it, really? I mean, we had, I mean, it's a good question, but in reality, three of us, uh, myself, Lord Cream, and Eric Stewart had formed a band uh, a few years before then called Hot Legs, and we had one hit record. But from that point on, I, we just couldn't get off the ground for some reason. We toured with the Moody, Moody Blues, and it just, just fell apart. Mm-hmm. So we became a, a sort of production, a house production unit. And, uh, and I don't know whether it was because we'd been stung before, but they thought, didn't occur to us probably because we were enjoying being those two things <laughs> staying in the studio I know it's nice and warm um, but yes you're absolutely right Neil Sadaka did suggest it and I think that was because we were all playing together we we were acting as a house band for Neil and we sounded pretty good as a band um, just with the addition of Graham on bass so it it was it was a natural thing, but when you say it like that, it does sound a bit pathetic. And in terms of 10CC, then obviously Donna was the breakthrough single. It went really big, really quickly. Went to, to number two, and and then there was a single in between which didn't do too well. But then came Rubber Bullets, and again that was another huge hit. Got to number one. I mean, at that stage, I mean, it's it's all it's all happening. It's all taking off for you, isn't it? It was yeah. I mean, it was it was it was amazing. Donna was originally a B side. Oh. If I remember things correctly, we didn't even have a record deal, but we recorded a track called Waterfall, which was a kind of a substandard Crosby Stills, Crosby Stills and Nash harmony thing, and we were shopping it round. I mean, it was we took it to Apple Records and they rejected it. But before we did that, we thought we'd better record B side for it in case somebody said yes, and that was Donna. When we eventually ran the two tracks past Jonathan King, he flipped them. He said, that is really good. Mm, not sure about you. And, and Donna came out and it was, it was a, a do-what pastiche, essentially, which, as you rightly pointed out, was successful. So we stupidly tried to follow it up with an equally do-what pastiche <laughs> that failed miserably. <laughs> And so that, that kind of set the tone, okay, we, we don't do the same thing twice, ever. Uh, and so we followed that theory forward from that point. 
And in terms of the song itself, Rubber Bullets, I mean, it was released at a, a difficult time for a single of that sort of nature, wasn't it, with the Northern Ireland troubles and things like that was going on. Um, what was what was the song actually about, though? What, what was behind the song? I think the thrust of it was, or the vibe of it, was was from early James Cagney movies, prison movies. Okay. You know, things like White Heat and stuff like that. Nothing to do with rubber bullets. And I, I don't even know how rubber became involved. Um, but that was the course. That's the thing we, we actually got first. And the rest of it was a story built around it from a period where rubber bullets didn't even exist. But yeah, it was, yeah, I suppose it was a bit controversial thinking about it, but we, we didn't care. Yeah. We were just making music. And we, you know, I don't think. We even thought it was going to be a single. I don't think we even thought in those terms. We just mm. we were exploring the possibilities at, at that time, and this turned out rather well. <laughs> rather well indeed with a number one, and you had a few more top ten singles uh, to follow that, and then came another worldwide smash, and uh, the massive song that I'm not in love. And again, yeah. you talked earlier about not doing the same thing twice because this song was very different to to what had come beforehand. That was a weird one because we were on to our, our second album, the original soundtrack, and we we, we recorded "I'm Not in Love" once, and it, 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 we didn't actually do it very well. We we recorded it as a as a kind of a, a bossa nova lounge thing, okay. and didn't sound great. So we 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 knew it was a good song, but we didn't think we'd nailed it. So we put it to one side and continued progressing to the album with a view to coming back to it, which we did. And so we all sat around and it was like, well, we got this great song, how are we going to do it? And uh, I think I said, well, just probably out of desperation, why don't we do it all with voices? And everyone went, yeah, all right. And then we eventually, we talked it through and figured out a possible way of doing it using tape loops. And of course, doing that, doing that using tape loops took forever to do, which meant that we could think about what else to do if this didn't work while we were <laughs> doing it. But of course, it did work, and it was one of those magical set of sessions that every time we added something, it got better and better and more unique. And so we never actually got back. To the starting point again, we just we just were lucky enough to follow it through to to, to some kind of conclusion. And did you get to a conclusion, or was there a point where you said we need to rein this back in again? Did you keep adding too much, or how how did it go? No, we as I said, it it, it was magical. It was like there was once we got part the way through it, and we began to understand that what we were doing was beginning to work. Yep. It was a matter of making it work as well as, as it could. Uh, but it was quite it was quite a complicated way of doing things. We, we essentially turned the, the mixing console into a, a Mellotron, I suppose, but instead of having keys, we were using faders to bring up the loops. So it was it was a bit crazy. And, and the, the original vocal was the, the guide vocal that Eric did to start it all off before we began the process of creating the vocal loops. It was an extraordinary thing. That happens rarely when you start a bunch of sessions not knowing what you're going to end up with. 
what usually happens is that works, that doesn't. No, try something else for that. Oh, go back two steps. Let's do this. But that wasn't the case. And then we mixed it and we listened back and we thought, fuck, I haven't heard anything quite like that before. <laughs> we knew there was something special about it. It was quite long, I think it was about six minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we felt we got something special. And we wanted to release it as a single, but the, the label was anxious about releasing anything in six minutes and released Life is a Minestrone instead. Meanwhile, Queen released Bohemian Rhapsody and stayed at number one for 15 years. So, lesson learned. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and in terms of the song, I mean, it was a huge hit for you in America as well. It kind of broke that market over there. And how, how was that then? Because at that point, that, that was your first real success, wasn't it, over there? So I think we tickled people's interest on that before, but um, that was massive. It really was. I mean, it's still knocking around now. It's, it was in Guardians of the Galaxy yeah. a couple of years ago. And that was going to be another question of mine, because I've got a nine-year-old who, who loves the song because of Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, how does that feel when it keeps coming around like that in popular culture? I love it. I just wish I'd written it. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's, lovely when, it's lovely when that happens, because it means that, it, that the work has a little bit of weight behind it. It's not just another passing fad. It's, there's something going on there that, that touches the generations across the board. So it's a good feeling. Indeed. And, and although you had so many hits and, and, and big records and things like that, something that hampered the band was the fact that you didn't really have a visual identity. I mean, maybe because you were tucked away in Manchester and you were, you were very consummate musicians and producers that you weren't as visual, you weren't in the public eye, you weren't falling out of nightclubs and things like that, were you? Do you think that had something to do with it? We weren't doing that. But if you think about it, two of us, myself and Lockering, were art school graduates. Yeah. So it still mystifies me why, why we didn't. I'm, ju- I'm trying to think back. I think, I think you're right to a certain extent. We were, we were so engrossed in the creation of the music itself, and the music was quite visual. You know, the stories that were told in the, in the music were, were quite visual, and I think it was uh, particularly the stuff that, Lockery when I wrote was very were very cinematic. And so we poured any any sort of visual ambitions into the music. But when it came to designing stage sets and and, and what we would wear and all that palaver, it didn't translate for some reason. We weren't that way that way inclined, and that really that really upsets me, actually because it was something that held us back. There was no, not that there were that many artists at the time that were hugely visual, but there were certainly some important people coming out of the UK, mm. yep. like Bowie and Moxie Music and, and so on and so forth, who also had an art school background, but had used it to develop something um, that had that put the music in some kind of context. We, we just didn't have this, the desire or the skills. Consequently, what we, how we did present ourselves was pretty poor. Indeed. And then in terms of the band itself, it was, it was two kind of distinct writing partnerships, wasn't it? It was yourself and Lawl, as you said, and, and Eric and Graham. And that's what ultimately led to, to the split and you, you guys going your own way and doing Godly and Cream, wasn't it? Kind of, although we never really thought of it as two writing, writing partnerships. It was two... Two different schools of thought, 
is possibly a different way of, of thinking about it. Law Cream and I were grew up at art college and uh, during the late 1960s, and that was all about experimentation and finding new ways to do things and never being satisfied with what you know you know. Always look for something beyond that. And we brought that to the table, whereas Eric and Graham were more classic songwriters who were always looking for the perfect song. Uh, and for a while, it was those two disciplines meshed extremely well, and, and we wrote and recorded some songs that had elements of both those approaches. Um, but, yeah, I, it, yes, that was probably the reason why we did go our separate ways, but more than that, there was a specific project that made that happen, which you're probably going to ask me about next, <laughs> which is Consequences. Well, go and ask me. <laughs> no, <laughs> if that's what you say going to ask yeah, No, 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 not at all. I'm going on to Consequences then, obviously yourself and, and, and Lol working on that. I mean, just talk us through that, because that was pretty incredible. Consequences or consequences, depending on mm-hmm. your point of view. <laughs> We'd invented this. This was back in the hot legs days. We wanted to create the sound of an orchestra. And we didn't particularly like the sound of a Mellotron. There were no synths around that time. So we figured, okay, but there were no orchestras. There was maybe one orchestra amongst the Halle Orchestra, which if you wanted to have strings on your record, you had to hire them, and they cost a lot of money. You'd have to hire an arranger and you'd write shorts and hand them out to everybody, and they'd break for tea every half an hour. It was a real number. Um, you have to filter your ideas through a hundred different people. So we were wondering, you know, a guitar is a stringed instrument. There must be some way that you can play a guitar to make it sound like a violin or something like that. And to a degree, uh, Jimmy Page had done some of that with a bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was just a matter of figuring out how to do it. The, but the first iteration of it was was a, an electric drill with an India rubber on the end held against Lowell's Stratocaster strings. Uh, which sounded like uh, sounded like a chainsaw for about a minute, but maybe for about five seconds in the middle, it sounded something like a violin, which told us that maybe there is something in this idea. So we hooked up with a couple of guys at Manchester College of Science and Technology, and they come they came up with a mechanism that did what we wanted this thing to do. It wasn't perfect by any means because back then the materials. Mm-hmm. Prone to yeah. temperature change, uh, humidity, you name it. <laughs> but that particular prototype was the one that was used for everything that we recorded with 10cc using the gizmo and all of consequences. And, and that's the story. I mean, some interesting people used it. Paul McCartney used it. I think Susie and the Banshees used it. A number of people used it, um, which is gratifying. And they are currently being made again, but using better materials. Ah. Um, interesting. Yeah. 
Um, and then in terms of the, the songwriting partnership, yourself and Lol, you had some uh, big hits as well at that point. Um, you had, was it Thumb? I think Wedding Bells were both top 10 hits. And then along came, we talked earlier about the fact that you didn't make the most of visually when you were with 10cc, but along came Cry, and it's the, it's the song and probably specifically the video, which really blew everybody away. It's what caught everyone's attention. It's what people still talk about today, even though the the well the actual process of making that video and the concept of it was just groundbreaking at the time now what do you remember about the the, the creation of the concept thinking of it and and how it turned out well i think the same the same applied to us with regard to visuals and reluctance to even go in front of the camera so yeah. the, the first idea that we had for a video for that song was to get Torville and Dean to skate to it. Okay. <laughs> and they weren't available when we needed to make it, so our diaries didn't work out. So we had to come up with some other idea quickly. And we thought, well, okay, it's the kind of song that anyone could sing. So why don't we get a selection of different people to sing it and just film them all the same and we'll figure out something to do with it when we get in the edit. <laughs> it was as simple as that. <laughs> so we sent cassettes of the song around to a bunch of people that we picked out of a, a casting book who looks interesting, all of whom said they were, they were absolutely fantastic at lip syncing, and not many of them actually turned out to be, um, <laughs> unfortunately. So those are the ones that appear in the silent bits. And that was essentially it. We just we, we we didn't know how we were going to string it together. All we knew was that it looked quite good, and we lined everybody up. Again, it was a sort of unconscious decision to do that. And um, I remember we did that. We had a sort of a stick with a with a little pan on the back that we tied to the back of the chair so people could rest their heads against it, so that they wouldn't move too much. It was all very sort of lash up. Mm. And we shot a number of people. We shot everybody throughout singing the entire song. And we did it in black and white because we knew it should be in black and white. It was only when we hit the edit, we started to cut between the faces and that was okay. And then mix dissolved between the faces and that was okay. And then... We started messing around with this thing called uh, a wipe, and that particular technique at the time was mostly used for creating sort of flashy titles, you know, where you could whip between one word and another or Zoom or all sorts of things. And by then it was like, well, what else can we try? What else does this thing do? <laughs> so we, we started doing this, and back then you, the way you operated stuff was manually, so you could start with one face and do that and go to another. And then if we did it really slowly and made the edge soft between the two images, we noticed that, hang on a minute, there's a face, somebody in between face A and face B that doesn't exist. That is an extraordinary. And so that, that, was the, that was the key to making video work, really. If you watch it, the first two or three transitions between faces are very simple. They're just mixes, full face to full face. But then suddenly this will happen. 
or this will happen, or that will happen. And it was like, what the fuck? So that was the what the fuck moment that took us all the way from that point through to the end. Then we had a, it was just a matter of choosing which phase goes to the next phase <laughs> uh, at every point during the song, at what point in the song it happens. But it was, again, it was, I guess it was a, a visual equivalent of recording of Night in Love. It was one of those, wow, I've not seen that before. That's really interesting. You know, and the obvious question is, well, is it boring? You know, it's the same thing all the way through. No, it's not boring. The human face is not boring to look at, period. So this is lots of them, but some of them don't even exist. So that, yeah, that was, that was, um, and by then we'd made a number of, of videos and won a few awards for them anyway. And we, we were, should we say, a, a presence in the music video world. So to do it for ourselves was, was, was a great thing. It was a good thing to do. And as you say, quite rightly, it was a huge element in making the song a hit. Absolutely. It's a video that's still talked about today. And even though watching it today, it, it looks old technology. At the time, it really did blow everybody away. It was, it was stunning. It was, it was yeah. just fabulous to see. I know. <laughs> Absolutely groundbreaking. And then you mentioned there the fact that, that by this point you'd made videos, you'd, you'd won awards, you were um, leading mu music video makers and things like that. Now take us back to the beginning there because an Englishman in New York, I mean, not the Sting version, what your song, you wanted to make a film about this, didn't you? You wanted to make a film for this video. And this is what really grabbed you on the video side of things, wasn't it? It was because we were a touring proposition. We were an act. Yeah. Um, and we made an album. But we didn't have the usual things in place to promote ourselves. So we thought, well, maybe, maybe make a little film to go with this track. This was before videos were being made properly. You get the occasional weird thing on Oliver Whistlefence, maybe, or something on top of the box. But the notion of the music video didn't quite exist yet. But we thought we could make a little film to go with this. Um, and be in it and all sorts of things. And maybe that would be shown somewhere because that's all we could think of. And so we had approached the record label with it, not really expecting them to say yes, but they said yes, but only on, with the proviso that we couldn't direct it because we, we never directed anything before. So they got a guy called Derek Burbage who had directed, I think, the first two or three videos for the police. And, and he was the poor guy that got to direct us. <laughs> but what actually happened was it was like two light bulbs going off. It was like, this is amazing. This is the perfect combination of stuff that we love, music, and we love film. And this is how it's done. Whisper, whisper, whisper. We could do this shit. <laughs> we could do this better, I think was the thought. We started meddling. We, we, you know, it's like poor old Derek. You know, what would happen if you do this? If we, if we did this and we did that and the other thing? Yeah. And we really, in that one single day of the shoot, we learned everything that we would ever need to know about shooting. And we also showed up at the edit and drove him crazy. <laughs> but, uh, well, once, if you press this button and pull this lever, 
and do this. And yeah, it, it was an instant, it was a match made in heaven. And for some reason, people found out that we were implicated in, in the making of it, in the idea of it, and so on and so forth. And shortly after that time, uh, Steve Strange had just formed Visage and was signed to Poddo. And we knew from knew Steve from being around the clubs and everything, so he asked us if we direct his first music video, which was our first professional gig as directors. And we had a budget of about, I don't know, it was about five, five grand or something, uh, most of which went to the makeup artist. But that record was a hit. So suddenly people were coming to us and asking us to direct their music videos. And this whole new sort of side career began to involve, evolve. And just one video to touch on, if you don't mind. Um, the Beatles track, I mean, Real Love. I mean, that that's a phenomenal thing to be asked to do. Now, t- tell us about how that came around. How were you asked to, to get involved with that? And what, what did that entail? Because I'm guessing there's a lot of red tape around what he could and couldn't use for things like that, was there? Yeah, to a degree. But they'd already done, I mean, there, there was a TV series on at the time and, a, and a, yeah. a big box set. And they'd already shot a video for the first single. It was quite a glossy shoot. And Paul wanted to do something a little simpler and something a bit raw that was really more about them and the sessions that were involved in getting to that point. So he, he called me up. Uh, and we'd known each other for, for, for a while because Lol and I did three tracks for Ringo Starr back in the day for a sort of small conceptual thing. And we also did a video for George Harrison. So we, we, we were known to, the, to everybody. And we were neighbours pretty much. Um, so we, I, I got a brief, which was essentially to use any of the archive footage and more that was, that was used in that series and come up with some kind of conceptual glue to wrap it all up, which I tried to do, which was, which was the punctuation between all this archive footage, essentially pieces of Beatle memorabilia and the shot of dropping a white piano into the Mersey and reversing it. Those were the two <laughs> sort of... And also a duplicating... Yoko's film of John in super slow motion I did with each of them as well. So there was touch points. But yeah, it, it, was, it was an honour because I would never have gone so deep into the music business or music had it not been for the Beatles. They were, they were inspirational people. So yes, it, it was an absolute honour. The funny story at the end of this was probably due to the red tape and so on and so forth that that was surrounding the project. The mix that I was given to cut to had John very low in the mix. And, you know, when I'm cutting, I like to be inspired by the sound, and the sound was the finished thing, so it wasn't great. So just to make everything clear for my own benefit so I could hear where things were happening, 
I took the bad mix into a little vocal studio and overdubbed myself singing the song <laughs> so I could at least hear it properly. And that's what I cut to. At some point further down the road, it got out onto the internet. So it's, you know, it's John Paul, George Ringo and Kevin somewhere <laughs> out there. Still, <laughs> I would imagine, singing real love. But yeah, I mean, an extraordinary experience. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic stories. Love hearing things like that. And just, just to, to wrap up the whole video thing, I know we're all very self-critical critical of our own work, but um, can you pick out one video that you're most proud of, whether it's the, the result or the impact it had or one that interpreted the vision of the song or whatever it was? Can you pick out one from your many that you've done? Oh, I can't. I can't. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very fond of the first video that I did for you two which was even better than the real thing. Um, I'm very fond of Herbie Hancock's Rocket. Um, I think the most significant thing that I did, and it wasn't really a video, it was more a, a long-form video, was a, a show that I did for Channel, no, it was for BBC Two called One World, One Voice, which was a, a virtually impossible project to pull off that we did. <laughs> <laughs> so, in, 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 in t but I also um, filmed YouTube live, what's it called, uh, Zoo TV outside broadcast. So, so there are loads of things that, that I'm really happy about and happy with, but for different reasons. You know, yeah. I also like the two I just did for Tim Burgess. So it's all. It's usually the last thing I do is not most of yes. the last thing is a complete <laughs> disaster. But that's. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. And let's move on then to your, your solo album. It came out a couple of years ago now, Muscle Memory. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into how it came around soon but um, and the unique way it was created. But for, first of all, why did it take so long for you to do a solo album? Was it just something that had never crossed your mind, something you'd never had any inclination to do? Or what, why, why did it take so long? I think it's, it was because I was kind of scared to a degree. I, don't, I think if you're a musician, um, or a writer or a singer, what it never really goes away. But I, I don't play an instrument. I don't play keyboards. I don't play guitar. And my experience of writing songs has always been the traditional way. It's always been sat opposite somebody who can play an instrument, and we just feed off each other until something develops. Yeah. And that no longer existed. But. Suddenly there was this thing called the internet, and, and which was developing at a rapid pace, and things were possible that weren't possible before. And I, two people that I didn't know sent me pieces of music, instrumental music, and neither of these people knew each other. It was two projects that came from disparate places asking me if I would write something and sing it over these two pieces of music, which I did, and I, I kind of enjoyed doing it. And I realized that that's actually, that process isn't too unlike sitting down and writing a song with somebody, the only difference being that they're not there, uh, and this is what they may have written on the guitar anyway, and there's more there to listen to. <laughs> and I figured, well, mate, what if I... What if I were to put an ask out there for people to send me pieces of instrumental music and I maybe I could pick some 
and turn them into songs, uh, which which is pretty much what I did. Um, and I got a very good reception. I got I got some over three hundred pieces of music, which I wasn't expecting at all. <laughs> um, so it became difficult. It was like, well, how do I? What do I do now? And you know, it was it was actually not that difficult. It was a matter of listening to something, singing over the top, and seeing if something happened. If something did, then I'd reserve those tracks and gradually whittle them down to the ones that led me towards something that was that was becoming clear. Uh, and then I would I would take the rough mixing that, that people had sent me, pull them into garage band. Um, I got myself some equipment, a microphone, and uh, so on and so forth, and started doing stuff. Uh, and when I got a certain distance into each song, I felt it was enough to show what the finished thing would be. I'd stand, I'd mix it and send it off to the guy who sent me the original track for comments. Uh, most of them said, that's great, carry on. So I did, until I had an album's worth of material. And, you know, I didn't have any huge expectations of, of selling any particularly. <laughs> but what was very surprising is that it got reviewed so well, which was, which was exciting for me because, I, I, A, most of it was recorded during lockdown or close to lockdown, and the subject matter wasn't particularly upbeat. <laughs> so including not, a track called Song of Hate, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I had no expectations commercially, if, if that makes any sense. But it all turned out fine. And, and out it went and uh, sold a few. And I became briefly part of the conversation again, which was nice. <laughs> Absolutely. And as we said, it was released in 2020. It's called Muscle Memory. I heartily recommend everyone to, to check it out on all the usual places and get hold of it. But uh, So what are you up to at the moment then, Kevin? What, what are you working on these days? Anything oh, exciting? I've been writing a couple of screenplays. I'm trying to get funding to direct both these screenplays. One is about Awesome Worlds. I am the early stages of writing the libretto for an opera and planning screen content for an opera. I've joined um, a company called a Group of Humans, which is essentially a group of disparate creatives who put various groups of themselves together to um, do different kinds of probably commercially-based jobs, branding jobs, which is interesting. I'm about to join a video games company. Um, okay. I'm tentatively starting to write some new music. And I'm planning an art exhibition uh, of some of my scrambled prints, which is difficult to describe, but you'll understand them when you see them. Um, <laughs> accidental art, for want of a better description. So in many ways, I've never been, never been busier, which is, which is quite bizarre. Absolutely. Plenty on your plate, indeed. Um, well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Kevin. Best of luck for everything in the future. You've got plenty on your plate going on, so I hope it all comes off for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
The brilliant Kevin Godley there. I feel like I need a second hour with him just to cover all the bits we never talked about, the other hits. Maybe go a bit more in-depth on some of the music videos too. Perhaps a future Side 2 episode, if I can sort that one out, is in order. But now is the time of the show for the Top 5s, and this week we're going to do Top 5 10cc songs, of course. But before I tell you what they are, a quick recap on last week's Top 5 songs from The Police. Lots of different suggestions, as one would expect, and we'll start with Maria, XP Girl, on Instagram, who offered up a Top 6. She said she couldn't keep it to just 5. So as well as some of the well-known tunes, she also included Demolition Man, Darkness, and Wrapped Around Your Finger. Stevie Ramlal also agreed with Wrapped Around Your Finger and offered up King of Pain in his top five, which was headed by Every Breath You Take. Joey Michaud had a few off my list, but also added Walking on the Moon and Murder by Numbers, while Janice Grief said So Lonely and Invisible Sun would make her top five list. Mike Norris made a fun comment. He said, Everything in my soul wants me to include Mother on there. It's the most maniacal song I've ever heard. Yes, it is an odd one. It's one of uh, Andy's from the Synchronicity record. As always, though, a big thanks to everyone who commented and got in touch with their suggestions. It is very much appreciated. But for this week's list on 10cc, if I'm completely honest, I knew their big hits, of which there were many, but I hadn't really delved into their back catalogue too deeply in the past. Even though I was a presenter, of shows such as Sounds of the 70s and the 80s Rewind show in years gone by on the radio, I've never really ventured too deep into their catalogue as the hits kind of stood for themselves. One real thing that stands out when listening back to their albums, though, is the variety in the tracks. As Kevin said in the interview, they vowed never to do the same thing twice, and that is definitely apparent in their composition and in the production techniques, too. And the fact that all four of them wrote tracks and all four of them sang various songs certainly adds to that. So after a bit of a crash course in 10cc this week, my top five is as follows. At five is a song from After the Split, from the 1977 album Deceptive Bends. It's a funky number with a fun video, Stuart and Goldman playing a defendant and a judge having a guitar battle in court. Definitely the highlight. And number five is Good Morning Judge. At four is a track from their debut album in 1973. It was a big number one hit in the UK. It's a rockier song with a big sing-along chorus, which definitely sounds great live. And number four is Rubber Bullets. Load up, load up, load up, rubber bullets. At three is a fascinating song. Just the concept of it makes me smile. It's from their album Sheet Music in 1974. Guitar is great on this, and the lyrics are very clever. And number three is the worst band in the world. It's one thing to know it, but another to admit We're the worst band in the world, but we don't give up And number two is another song from the post-split era of 10cc and another big number one single. This from the 1978 album Bloody Tourists. It's reggae rock going down a storm globally, except in North America, perhaps because they don't understand the wonderful sport of cricket. At number two is Dreadlock Holiday. And at number one is the opening track on their sheet music album. It has a great guitar riff, satirical lyrics of the day, dealing with the economy and public figures and businesses. The number one song from 10cc according to Vintage Rock Pod is Wall Street Shuffle.
And there you go, my top five songs from 10CC. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Email me at vintagerockpod at gmail.com or you can find me on the social media channels. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on all the usual sites, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that sort of thing, and you'll be able to find me on them. Come say hello, let me know your selections, and you too will get a mention on next Monday's big interview show. Please check out Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube as well. I'm inches away from 1,000 subscribers. It would be awesome to hit that mark. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube, hit the red subscribe button. It's absolutely free, and you'll be doing me a big favour. Plus, you'll be doing yourself a big favour because there's some fantastic videos on there with some of the brilliant guests I've had on the series over the years. But that's it for me for this week's big interview show. Thanks again for listening. I'm going to be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks. And remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.